This morning we begin a new message series on Abraham beginning in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. I want to invite your attention there and would like to begin by quoting George Bernard Shaw who said that uh, if there is life on other planets, if there's life on other planets, they must be using this earth as the insane asylum. And you know, I, I can sympathize with that. Now, he made that several decades ago. There are about 10 hands that shape the United States. About 10 hands that shape the United States. Uh, there are those that are in uh, politics. Uh, they shape the United States. There are those in the media. Uh, there are entertainers. There are athletes. Uh, there are educators. Uh, some religious leaders, especially the more liberal. Uh, the, the common person does as well. And they, they battle with each other to shape the United States. And nearly, and this may come as a shock to you, but nearly every one of them has come to the point where they do not regard God in their work, in their vision, in what they need to do. Even the religious leaders. Many of them do not. I found that to be true and have been terribly disappointed through the years by what I have seen. And as a result, we have a nation now that qualifies as just an old-fashioned, insane asylum. No offense to the insane. Now, we can complain about the nation, and you'd be justified by doing so, but uh, let's talk about ourselves for just a moment. One person said that if sin happened to be brown hairs, we'd all be grizzly bears. So not only is the nation struggling... But the people are struggling as well in many different ways. How in the world does God respond to that? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we find the story of Abram. That's how God responded to Genesis chapter 11, which happened to be the story of the Tower of Babel. They built a tower to the sky in order to make a name for themselves and for security purposes, lest they be scattered and attack. So they pulled themselves together, they collaborated together, they built a religious tower to make a name for themselves and to have security, which is precisely what God told them not to do in chapter 9, verse 1, when he commissioned Noah and his sons to cover up the earth. You see, what God told them in chapter 9, he expected them to obey generations later in chapter 11. You see, if it was a command in the word yesterday, it's a command today. It is. And God has the same expectations of us in these ways. And so God saw that, and God scattered them and confused their languages, and we have been confused ever since. We have. That's why many of you did not like taking languages in school. It's confusing. It's a challenge. Uh, and you realize how difficult the languages of the earth are to learn until you realize you're speaking English, which has got to be one of the most difficult ones other than Mandarin Chinese. But God's response to the insanity and the secularism and the chaos and the confusion of chapter 11 is to pull off chapter 12, which begins a theme of blessing. And that's what we find taking place in chapter 12 of, uh, of the book, of Genesis. Here 
when God saw the insane asylum of Babylon and God or Babylon uh, or Babel offered to God an insane asylum of chaos, God responded with an Abram of blessing. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look what it says here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Beloved, where insane asylums abound, God's blessing abounds more. That's how God responds in our day, in this age of the church, and even the age of Abram, to the insane asylum we call our world and our very own lives. Let me ask you, are you going through some insanity right now? Are you going through some chaos right now? You probably should be. I'll explain later why. But are you going through something right now? Can I tell you? You're about to get a blessing from God. God's going to come through. He does so. And He loves to. And He has got the power. He's got the love. He's got the wisdom to... uh, Uh, target a blessing precisely where you need it as defined in the scripture now this is not the last time this passage appears in the bible Uh, paul speaks of it in galatians chapter 3 verse 8 and you'll want to be very familiar with that verse he says that when moses writes in verse 3 that abram would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth that there god is preaching the gospel The saving gospel of Christ appears in this text. And here's the wonderful thing about it. We are saved, we're made just and pure before God by faith. Many theologians call that the doctrine of the justification by faith. We're we're saved by faith. And that has been the clarion call of Bible-centered churches now for five years hundred years since the protestant reformation restored it into the thinking of the churches one of the most dominant and eternally one of the most urgent and important doctrines in the entire word of god was lost for about a thousand years in the church no matter how important it was they actually worked against it and a little monk stood up by the name of Martin Luther and sought to restore it into the church. Now, we don't think he went far enough. And so while he was protesting the Catholics, we protested him. Baptists did. We've been protesting ever since. That's part of our DNA. We, we stand for the Word of God. Don't like controversy and don't like protest necessarily. But we love truth more than we love comfort. And so we elevate the Word of God. And so justification by faith has been the clarion call, the heartbeat, the passion of the church for 500 years. Now listen to me. Never, ever get weary or bored with justification by faith. Never get weary or bored. Let me tell you why. Justification by faith. Do you know what that means? That means if an Alzheimer's patient has got 60 seconds of lucidity. That patient can turn to Jesus Christ and be saved and then lose their memory from there on out and meet God 
as father instead of judge. That means with someone with ADHD, if they can concentrate for 60 seconds, they can repent and place faith in Jesus Christ and lose their concentration after that. If someone's mind has been blown on drugs and they can give attention, momentary attention, to justification by faith, then ladies and gentlemen, they can be saved. If the gutter bum who reeks of alcohol has a moment of sobriety and repents and places faith in Jesus Christ, that person can be saved. If the one who has soiled themselves with immoral sexuality has just a moment of humility and faith and can place it in Jesus Christ, that person can be saved and made eternally right with God. Don't ever get bored with justification by faith. It is our hope. It is our life. It is our heaven because it's by faith, not by memory, not by concentration, not by virtue, not by works, but by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank God. So don't get bored with it. Get wound up with it. That's what we need to be. And I appreciate your help preaching. Come on, let's do some more. Okay. Now, here's the, uh, here's the question I want to ask and answer. What, what is, what does this blessing do? What does God's blessing do? Well, number one, God's blessing surpasses our competitors. Right now in your life, there are forces and individuals competing for your loyalty and for first place in your life. Oh, they're competing. I mean, sex is competing for your attention. Uh, drunkenness is competing for your attention. Uh, another romantic relationship, when all the others have not worked, is competing for your attention and your loyalty. Uh, the dollar is competing for your loyalty in first place in your life. Selfishness and narcissism is competing for first place in your life. Doubt and despair is competing for first place in your life. Anxiety is competing for first place in your life. You are met nearly moment by moment with competitors for your loyalty and for first place in your life. And I've got to say, I need to point you to verses 1 through 3 on this. Are you facing some competitors? Verses 1 through 3. Uh, God speaks to Abram. And according to Joshua 24, 2, Abram and his family were worshiping pagan gods at the time. Abram was not always a believer. But at this moment, God intervenes and gets his attention and brings him to himself. And here's what he says. He gives a condition in verse number 1. Get out of your country from your family, your father's house, to a land I will show you. So you've got to leave where you are and relocate to another place. Abram is the first human missionary. And this is what he does. And he goes to a land and he doesn't know where he's going. God said, I will show you. Now, you know, the Lord's never done that with me. When we moved here to Athens five years ago, I knew where I was going. Get on I-20, come on, come up 138 through Monroe, uh, come up the Monroe Highway, down Atlanta Highway, and here I am. I knew where I was going. I have always known where I'm going. Now, not everyone in my family, when they drive, knows where they're going. And they simply say, don't worry about it. The world's round. We'll get there eventually. Well, I've always known where I'm going. Do you realize God called Abram to go out from where he was with this blessing to a land he did not know of? 
He gets up one morning, he takes this large household and all these herds and all these flocks, and he begins to leave, and as I can imagine one of his neighbors saying, Abram, what are you doing? He said, I'm leaving. He said, um, where, where are you going? Well, I don't know. Well, why are you going? God directed me to. And that's what Abram has got here. This is a condition, but then there's the content of the blessing. And I want you to notice the, the repeated words and the phrases here in the text. Uh, you'll see, I will, and, and you will see, bless. And, and then you will also see repeated, um, uh, not only I will and bless, but you'll actually find seven different promises in just these two verses, beginning in verse number two. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Well, let's go back to verse 2. I will make you a great nation. Well, what nation came forth from Abram? Israel. Would you agree with me? Israel's pretty great. And then, I will bless you. Has Abram and his descendants been blessed all these millenniums? Oh, yes. And then, I will make your name great. That's what Babel was angling for. Does Abram have a great name? Oh, he certainly does. And then, you shall be a blessing. Have the descendants of Abram been a blessing to the world? Oh, I could go on and on with what they've achieved in literature and in the sciences, in, in, in theater, in art, in music, in politics, in geopolitical relationships. They have been an enormous blessing. Then he goes, I will bless those who bless you. Nations that bless Israel are themselves blessed. But then he said, I will curse him who curses you. All the ancient nations that have opposed Israel are now on the dustbin of history, on the garbage heap of the ages. Uh, let me ask you, can you find a Hittite anywhere in the world? Have you ever met a Philistine? Have you ever met a Canaanite? Have you ever met a Jebusite? Have you ever met any of these? These opposed Israel, and they are now in the dustbin and the ash heap of history and the ages. That, that has come true as well. And modern nations, all the way up to Nazi Germany, gone. Eliminated from the earth. And then he goes on. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there, Paul says in Galatians 3.8, that's how he preached the gospel in this text. It's a hope for the world. So that's the content of the blessing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the condition and the content of the blessing. What Babel sought by their own efforts, God gave to Abram by his grace. When it comes to blessing, when it comes to satisfaction, there is no one that can compare to Almighty God. No one can compete with him. He's never dry. No one has ever dried as many tears as he has. No one's ever satisfied the heart like he has. No one has ever rectified and soothed the conscience as he has. God Almighty is in first place through his Son. Now this came to light in the research of a Harvard psychology, uh, a psychiatric professor. His name is Robert Coles. He did some research on uh, those that were poor but had faith in the United States. And he found that they were oftentimes the victim of, uh, of, of an awful lot of prejudice and discrimination. And yet, they were some of the happiest people in the world. They were forgiving. They were loving. They were committed and connected to one another. 
They had vibrant communities with other believers in Jesus Christ, and it made a powerful difference in their lives, and it got this Harvard psychiatry professor's attention. And it dawned on him in the middle of this research of poor Southern Christians that what, that what they had by faith in Jesus Christ is what his colleagues and others in the academic world were pursuing by money and intellect, by fame and authorship and vocational accomplishments and were not finding it all. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, you will never ever find satisfaction any place but Jesus Christ. He and He alone is the hope of the world. And so what Robert Coles did is that he began to teach literature in the medical school, the law school, in the business school, in order to exalt the Christian faith before his students. And let me say to you, you don't have to go to Harvard to learn that. I can give you a $1 Bible and introduce you to the source of your satisfaction, Jesus Christ. You don't need another romantic relationship. You don't need another sexual experience. You don't need to change your gender. You don't need to change, ladies and gentlemen, you don't need to change your marriage. You don't need to change anything in your life until first you give yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the source of satisfaction. No one competes with him. So God's blessing surpasses our competitors. But there's a second thing, and that is God's blessing stimulates our commitment. Now, just about all of life, almost everything in life that you and I experience is dedicated to the pursuit of security and painlessness. That's why we have the conveniences and appliances in our kitchens. We don't want any inconvenience. That's why we have the vehicles that we do. Hey, I thought as a boy standing up in the front seat was safe enough, but now they've got seatbelts in these things. And, and the safety features on vehicles uh, multiply and even get more complex and costly as the years go by. Nearly everything in life is designed for security and painlessness in life. I've got to tell you, Abram didn't have that luxury. Look at verses 4 through 9 you'll find instead that God called him to a commitment that involved some pain. Um, in fact, look at verses four through, uh, 4 through 5. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old, and he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed for Canaan. He obeyed God, but in Haran, he had a commitment to evangelism. Oh, he did. I'm not making this up. Look at verse number 5 again. He gathered his possessions and the people whom he had acquired. The One Hebrew scholar translates this, the souls he won. He is the first godly evangelist of the ages. That's part of his commitment. But then, that's not all. Look what he did in Canaan in verses 6 through 7. It says here, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He's in Canaan, and he has a commitment to boldness. 
He's in the midst of the Canaanites, a pagan people, a violent people, and in the midst with this large household, all of these servants and these large uh, numbers of livestock, in the midst of them all, when he's getting the attention of the region, he stops in the middle of all the pagans and he builds an altar to God and calls on the name of the Lord. He's not intimidated. He's not backed down. He's not hushed. He is not shy about it. He's not reserved. He takes a stand in the midst of the world and calls on God with boldness. So in Haran, he had evangelism. In Canaan, he had boldness. But then, look here in verse 8. And he, uh, we'll find here what he did in Bethel. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going still toward the south. In Bethel, he had abandoned. Abram was a wealthy man back in the Ur of the Chaldees. His name appears on some of the columns of the city, archaeologists have found. He was a very prominent man, lived in a palace, had a powerful, powerful life with plenty of prestige, power, pull, and possessions, and he gives it all up to live in a tent. That's what Abram's got. God's blessing stimulated a powerful commitment in the life of Abram. Listen to me carefully. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ for the balance of your life, you must understand from the very beginning that coming to Jesus Christ and following Him is a commitment that is eternally secure, but in terms of the earth, it's very insecure as others judge it. Now, I'd rather walk on the water with Jesus and sink once in a while than be in the boat without Him, okay? Don't misunderstand me. And, and from His perspective, by faith, walking with Him is the most secure thing we can do on the earth. But I'm going to tell you, there'll be times in your life where you're the only one who thinks so. You've got to understand, Jesus Christ is not trying to eliminate pain from your life in this earth. Jesus Christ is not trying to eliminate all insecurity from your life on this earth. What Jesus Christ is doing is that he's trying to get you to do the will of the Father no matter what. No matter what. I've told you before, but someone wrote C.S. Lewis one time and said, what's the most comfortable religion in the world? He said, well, I imagine worshiping oneself is the most comfortable religion, but I didn't come to the Christian faith to be comfortable. If you're looking for a comfortable religion, I do not suggest the Christian faith. Because Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, what? Take up his cross and follow me. Whenever we give ourselves to Jesus Christ, then what we have is that we've got a formula for insecurity and pain as the world uh, views it, and it requires a commitment to Him. But God's blessing stimulates this very thing. And so, when you come to Christ and you follow Him, you're committing yourself to a life of change. A life where you're expecting the church and worship services and worship styles and where you're expecting programs to make you significant and meet your needs. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No. We meet the need of the kingdom of God and we make Jesus significant, not as servants. We're just unworthy servants doing what we're supposed to do. When, when we come to Jesus Christ, 
We're not the kind of people who dwell and live in bitterness. We forgive. And we become masters of it, beginning with our marriages. Marriages are good, successful marriages are usually not composed of people, two people who uh, have got everything together. They're usually composed of two people who've mastered forgiveness. And so are churches. And so are workplaces. And so are families. That's what we've got to have. We've got to have a mastery of the willingness to change and forgive. That, that means that the uh, five or ten minute devotional time that we have in the morning, we, we don't maintain that over the decades. We increase and we make our goal the, uh, the opportunity to pray down the stars so that God comes through in our prayer life. You see, it, it's a matter of change in our lives. Um, that's what we're looking for. So God's blessing stimulates our commitment. But there's one final thing in the text. And that is God's blessing soothes our conscience. As we look at Abraham, you're going to find that God tested him on a number of occasions, and Abram usually failed. That's what happened. Beginning in verse 10 down to verse 20, that's what takes place. God blesses him. He starts right in Haran, in Canaan, in Bethel. And then there's a famine in the land. And instead of doing what God wanted him to do, and that is stay in Canaan and trust God to provide, he left. He resigned Canaan. And he went to Egypt where there was food. Now this compromise, it was very reasonable. There's a famine in the land, but there's food in Egypt. It was urgent. Egypt had food. Canaan didn't. It was initially very successful. Pharaoh treated him well. But that's only because Abram, before he got there, told Sarah, his wife, tell them all that you're my sister because you're a gorgeous woman and they're going to kill me in order to have you. And she cooperated. And the result was God plagued Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh got a hold of what's going on here. He confronted Abram and said, What in the world did you do with me? Why did you do this to me? And he returned Sarah back to Abram and honored Abram's marriage commitment. That's precisely what happened. Do you know something? Abram couldn't witness to Pharaoh from that point on. Pharaoh wasn't going to listen to him. Pharaoh wasn't going to take him seriously. He wrecked his witness. Abram then has got a terrible, terrible conscience. But look what happens in verse number 20. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. One of the most powerful rulers in the world had the opportunity to execute Abram, and he didn't do it. And then Abram gets things right with God. And in chapter 13, verse number 4, he came to the place of the altar which he made there at first, and he called on the name of the Lord. God let him come back. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to understand something from the very outset. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must know that you're going to have to learn to recover when you fail. You got to. Especially if you're overcoming an addiction. If you're overcoming a nasty pattern in your marriage, you're probably going to do well for a little while, but don't be too surprised or knocked backward when you relapse. you got to learn, though, 
to get back up and go on. It reminds me of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said, success is nothing more than running from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. That's what we need. We've got to run from one of our failures to the next one with undiminished enthusiasm. Scottish preacher Alexander White said that indeed the Christian faith is a series of new beginnings. That's what it is. New beginnings. That's why his mercies are new every morning. Listen to me. Listen. Right now what you're struggling with What bothers your conscience? What shames you right now? Listen to me. You've got a bigger problem with it than God does. It's paid for. And if you'll humble yourself before God, if you'll trust Him, get back up and move on, even if it's seven times, God is going to come through and strengthen you. And He will not fail you at all he'll not fail you he loves you he cares and the life that jesus lived and the life that jesus gave at the cross then becomes your story sometimes you feel like you're crucified but god raises you and he is willing to do so and he's willing to do so today if you'll turn and place your faith in him let me ask you have you ever picked up something that you thought you could lift and you couldn't and you needed some help. Never done that? I never have, but some of us have. <laughs> you need to approach this subject that way. Uh, Acts 26, 20 says that what God does is that he declares repentance towards God in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need this morning. Repent and place faith in Him. In other words, when you come to that heavy object, a couch, a refrigerator, some other heavy object, and you uh, decide you need to pick it up, and, and you came upon it, and you couldn't do it by yourself, you changed your mind about picking it up. And you did what? You went and got some help. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to know, when it comes to having forgiveness and making things right with God, and living for Jesus, you've got to practice the same thing. This thing is too heavy for you to pick up. The thing is, there isn't room for two people to try to lift your Christian life. There's only room for one, and God says, step aside and let me do it, and you trust me. So change your mind. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trying to make yourself right with God. Step out of the way Trust Him, and God will come through. And some of you are ready to do that this morning. Hey, we're going to sing a song in just a moment after I pray. And when we sing, we're going to ask you to come. Staff will be here in the front, and we're going to give you the opportunity to pray with them about your need. Would you do that? Let's stand together real quickly. Let me pray, and then we're going to come. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the gospel. I pray, O oh God, that you come in power.